Good morning. If you would please take your Bible and look to Nehemiah, and we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 8. I preached my first sermon when I was 18 years old. I was a senior in high school. A number of players from my baseball team came to hear that sermon. A number of them had never been in a church before in their lives. And uh, it brings back fond memories as I think back to those days. And uh, it was brought up to me, my brother was talking about how many years in ministry he had been. And as I was thinking about it, uh, if he was counting from the first time he preached the sermon until now, if I went by that, um, I am uh, 40 years in the ministry this year. And many times I preached in many a Southern Baptist church. I think I maybe told you this I, when I was a young man and I did a lot of supply preaching and and it was a big deal when a church asked me to come back a second time. That didn't happen right away, I can assure you. Um, but uh, it was a big deal to me that maybe, uh, maybe they, they can weather it one more time with me. But um, over the years, I've asked people in many different venues and Southern Baptist churches, do you believe that we need a spiritual revival in America today. And without fail, people will say yes. And uh, I would have them raise their hands and it would be uh, almost everybody, if not everybody. And then I would ask the question, how many of us believe that we need revival in the church today? And again, they would raise their hands, say yes, we need that in the church today. Then I would ask this question, how many of you believe you need it in your life today? That you need a spiritual renewal. That you need God to do a work in your life and that, that there needs to be some real repentance, real understanding of God's word and a devotion to his word and a devotion to him to serve him and to be the person that God has called you to be. Um, I did not ask them to raise their hands with that third question. But I think it's interesting how often we, we can look at our country and we, we say it des- desperately needs revival. I don't know if it needs revival or if it just needs Christ. Uh, revival gives the idea that there was some life to begin with, but what we see in our country today is just a lot of death spiritually, spiritual darkness in our world that, that need life. And uh, not renewal, but they need to know Christ. And yet, we see this in the church today where there is a desperate need for revival. There is a desperate need for God's work to be done. And this was the case in Nehemiah's day. We've been going through this study, and we realize that it appears, if you, if you begin the book, that, the, that it's really all about rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem. But if you remember, so many times, Nehemiah brings up the idea of no longer being a reproach, that the people of God would no longer be a reproach, a disgrace to God and a poor witness to the nations around them. And so really, after finishing the wall, what we see in the second part of this book is God really, or Nehemiah, 
really in God through Nehemiah, really beginning to do the most important work. And that is not the rebuilding of the wall, but to rebuild the lives of his people, to rebuild the people of God, to be the people of God, so that they would no longer be a reproach to the nations around them. And it is interesting that we often can look at our country, we can look at our community, we can look internationally um, from the church today and, and see so many things that are just uh, so disheartening and disturbing. And yet, the true answer, I believe scripturally, is for the people of God to be the people of God that God has called us to be so that we would be a light to our community, a light to the nation, a light to the nations. And the real work of God doing a work in the nations and in our, in our nation and in our community is going to begin right in the church with the people of God, if I understand the scriptures as they teach God's purpose for the church. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that the people of God come together and they come together to hear the reading and teaching of God's word. And as we look at the structure of this, there are the three parts, and we'll spend most of our time on the first part, and then, Lord willing, we'll, we'll finish up the last two. But the three parts to this is, first of all, the reading of God's word, the reception of God's word, and then the response to God's word. So the reading of God's word, the reception of God's word, and the response to God's word. And I would like us to begin reading, and let's read the first eight verses here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in the front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah, on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and then he opened it, and all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, 
from the law of God, translating or explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. As we look at this passage, the first thing we see here is that the people were unified in their desire to hear the word of the Lord. And it makes me think of the words of David in Psalm 133. He writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down from the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down from the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And it's probably difficult for us to truly appreciate the unity of the people of God until we have experienced the disunity of the people of God. And when we look at the scriptures, it's really true that throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are more um, in disarray and there is a lack of unity and very much disunity among the people. And when we get into the New Testament and we read really carefully the, the letters of Paul and, and the other books of the apostles, we really get a picture of the church as well having to deal with quite a bit of disunity in it. And we see this, for instance, when Paul begins his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Well, let's understand that, that Paul was not writing this if it wasn't an issue. Um, it, it's not like uh, the church I grew up in. Uh, we would have uh, revival services and um, the evangelist would preach, and you could almost always count on him preaching on one sermon about the woes of alcohol and, and drinking, and um, people would just be saying amen, and they'd get after it, and I, as, even as a little boy, I knew all these people. I grew up with them. I mean, I, we lived in the same church and, and same community, and I was in their homes, and they were in our home, and I remember looking, I look at the, our whole crowd, and I'm like, I don't know any of these people that drink, and they were all just really hyped up about it. And, it, you know, it's kind of like we say preaching to the choir. Like, I mean, okay, yeah, we like this because we're not doing it. So this is wonderful preaching. This is not what was going on with Paul in, in the Corinthian church. There was division. We see this in his letters, both in First and Second Corinthians. And we see it in other letters that Paul writes to other believers. And so he calls for this unity, but it is interesting, we need to keep in mind, it's not unity just for the sake of unity, because we see also in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3 and chapter 10 that he, he talks about there are those who are obedient to God's word and those who are disobedient to God's word, and he is not saying that they should be all united um, regardless, but he's saying, no, 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 you need to be obedient, and you don't go along with those who are disobedient just to go along. And so this is what happens, and this is very much a part of what happens among the people of God. It happened in the Old Testament era. It happened during the early church in the New Testament, and it has gone on until this very day. But the unity that I think that Paul talks about certainly includes the kind of unity that we see with the people of God 
in Nehemiah's day when Ezra read God's word. They were united in this. They were united in their desire to know God's word. They were united in their desire to listen to what God had to say to them attentively. And it's interesting in this passage, um, we see the word people um, mentioned 15 times in this whole chapter. And then also we see the phrase, all the people, and this occurs 10 times. And it gives an emphasis to the point that all the people, the people wanted to know God's word. And this was at the heart of these people. Spiritual renewal will not take place without the centrality of the word of God. And I will tell you, um, being an outsider, that you've invited graciously to come and be with you for these few months, it has been a joy to me to be here, but I will tell you that before I ever came here, you do have a reputation, whether you know it or not. And your reputation is that you are a people who wants to know God's word. And that the word of God is central to you. And this is very important to you. What I would urge you to keep in mind that we must not rest on yesterday's victories to suffice for today's challenges. And yes, you've had this as your reputation in the past. The future will only tell if that becomes your rep reputation as you continue on. And it is important that the people of God never lose their focus that central to our lives is the Word of God. Why is this? I had a professor one time saying, you conservatives, and by the way, they didn't call us conservatives, by the way. This is at Southern Seminary. Um, they, they would call us fundamentalists. I didn't know who they were talking about at first. I really didn't. I came in and they talk about these, I won't say it again, but they would call us this. And I'm like, who are they talking about? And they would begin to describe these people. And then I remember it's like a light bulb. It's like, oh, they're talking about me. Yeah. I mean, that's like, oh, okay. I know, I know who these people are. I'm one of them. Yeah. And so there you go. But he would call us bibliolaters, that we had made the Bible an idol because of the centrality of the Word of God. Now, that is just nonsense. And they know this to be nonsense. Because the reason we have such a love for God's word is because it is God's revelation of himself and we love him. And it is the way he has chosen in his providence to reveal himself, not the only way he has revealed himself in his son, but his son has gone up to be with him at his right hand and he is our mediator, he is our advocate. And what we have is the Holy Spirit who is with us who does what? Who opens up the word of God to us so that we might know God. And so it is not bibliolatry. It is a love for our Lord and our desire to know him. And so we have a desire for his word because it is his way he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so it is precious to us. Secondly, we see here everyone understood God's word, um, who could understand, rather, God's word, came to listen to God's word. Everyone who could understand 
came. I think this is very important as, as we think about this. Um, Derek Kidner um, made this statement. He says, The law had always envisaged a wise and understanding people taught from childhood, not only the words of God, but what the words and rituals meant. Several years ago, I went to a pastor's conference, and uh, it was a church that was just really reaching a lot of people, and I was eager to go there. And I, I remember going into the first session, and it was a, about worship, and uh, it was fantastic. It was just really a blessing to me. And the only thing is, I wish I had left after the first session. Because after the first session, and I saw what they did in corporate worship, and they talked about that, then they talked about how they went about their education of people in the Word. And basically, they had no biblical education for children until they became teenagers and had some kind of youth program, and they had no biblical education at all geared toward seniors, senior adults as well. They were locked in to one age group, and really, they just had uh, an extended nursery up until someone was 13 years old, and that's all it was, was a playtime for them, and then they had no classes or no gearing toward anyone um, that was old enough to be a grandparent. And I remember leaving that conference thinking, this church is the most shallow church I've ever visited before. Because they could put on a great production in their worship services. But they, they also, by the way, when they did have any kind of special like vacation Bible school or something like that once a year events for their children, um, they also censored scripture to make sure that uh, they didn't say anything offensive um, to these people as well, these young people. And it was very interesting to me, and I never forgot that. That is not what the scriptures picture for the people of God. The people of God... All that can understand should be taught. And by the way, people can understand at a pretty young age certain things. And that is why in the church, a lot of churches, and I appreciate this, there is some kind of graduated teaching. In other words, um, you probably don't have uh, the, the two and three-year-olds listening to our sermons every time they come to church. Wouldn't hurt them to hear once, though, uh, a week, um, something like that. But I understand there is a place for um, graded learning and education. Um, my background, my, my degree is secondary math education. I've been all through those levels of learning, understanding that, and I get it. And there's something to that. But there's also something to the people of God coming together as a people of God from the youngest to the oldest, coming together to listen to the Word of God read and taught. And I, I, I had this experience quite often with my children. In fact, this was almost always the case. We had about a 25 to 30 minute drive home from our church. And um, 
we would get in the car, and this is when I wasn't a pastor. This is when I was at, at uh, Southern, and uh, my sons were teenagers. We would get in the car, and I would say, hey, what would you guys talk about today? What would you learn? And, and basically, I would get feedback from what they had learned in Sunday school, but also I'd say, what do you think about the preaching today? What do you think about what he said here, and, and what, what are your comments on that? I'll never forget um, when a guy did a sermon, he was talking from Ephesians, and he was talking about the family, and um, he, uh, he was very um, much pushing that men should love their wives, which is true, but I got a kick out of my 13-year-old. He said, that guy was really trying to make sure he stayed in good, uh, good graces with his wife in that sermon. That, that, that was obvious. Whatever he was doing, that was what he was about on that. But they, we would talk about these things. And it's a time for the family to, to talk about the things of the Lord and to come together to learn these things and to, to work through these things and understand that as the people of God, all ages come together to do this. And so it's important as we look at this passage, everyone says men and women, and then it says everyone who could understand. And so this means children as well. Those who could understand came um, to hear and, and to listen. And this is a beautiful sight, and it is a picture of the people of God, what it's meant to be. Also, we see here that the people listen to God's word attentively. Um, they, it says here, um, literally in uh, the original language, and the ears of all the people were to the scroll of instruction, that they gave themselves to it completely. And that's an odd way to say it in Hebrew, by the way. So to say it that way is to emphasize just how attentive they were. And they gave full attention to it. Also, this went from dawn to midday. And they gave themselves to this. They were hanging on every word. I think about this, uh, I'm kind of a history buff, and I remember reading a story about a, a, a uh, soldier who was behind enemy lines, and uh, there was a bomb that uh, he had to um, take care of and uh, make sure he could dismantle. And the story goes that he was on his... Uh, um, microphone and his headset, whatever he had there, and they were giving him directions. And uh, it makes very clear in that story, he was hanging on every word that was coming so he could do it correctly. Let's understand that there is nothing more important and more serious for life and death than God's word. And we see this in the word of God itself. In Leviticus 18, 5, it says, So you shall keep my, the Lord says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 4, 1, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live. And also in the New Testament, John chapter 8, um, beginning with verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, 
Then you are truly my truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then James, in James chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Like the people in Nehemiah's day, we need to recognize our lives depend on the words of life, which is God's word. And we should do everything we can to be attentive to them. You may say, well, I, I'm in God's word every day. Are you? Because the question is, are you reading some devotional that someone gave some little paragraph? Or are you really reading God's word and really diving into what it says? I read just recently that Christian psychologists have said that people who read just devotions, that it's not really helpful to them if they're just reading some paragraph with a verse. And in fact, with some of their patients, it's become detrimental to them. On the other hand, they said people who are actually reading God's word and actually seeking to study God's word, there is a tremendous difference in their mental state as they truly give themselves to taking in the word of God. And so these people were serious about this. They were giving themselves to God's word. It wasn't just a little ditty that they read and checked off for the day, but it was a commitment to the word of God. And nothing should impede us, and we must not let anything impede us from that. Another thing we see here in verse 4, the people had prepared for the reading of God's word. Notice they built a podium. It's the only time... I believe in the Old Testament, maybe in the scriptures, that it mentions a podium. But it's interesting, they built the podium because they were expecting the word of God to be read. And so they planned for it. It wasn't just a haphazard thing like, hey, we're all here. Let's get somebody to get the scroll out and read since we're just all here anyhow. No, 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 no. It was planned they made sure that there was a platform and there was a podium so that all could see and all could hear the reading of God's word. It was not something to take lightly. And they de demonstrated this desire for God's word by even building a, a podium. And we notice here that they gladly heard it. They received it gladly. And a sign of mature spiritual leadership and just spirituality in a believer is a desire to receive God's word. And it mentions here the leaders who publicly desired, showed their desire to, to hear God's word that those who are teachers of God's word are willing, and not just willing, have a desire themselves to be taught God's word, to give themselves to God's word. 
And this is what we see with these people. They demonstrated this, this desire. The people showed respect for God's word. It's interesting here. It says all the people in verse 5, they stood up. Now, am I saying that we need to always stand up when the, the reading of God's word um, happens? I'm not saying that. I was in a church that did that, and that's, that's fine. But it's not something that the scriptures point to. The point is this, though. In their culture, to show respect was to stand up. And I even taught at a, I was a church planter, and for about five years, I taught at, a, at what was then the largest Christian school actually in America, but uh, I taught at that school while I was doing the church planting work, and um, they had a rule that if any adult walked into your classroom, the students all stood. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life, but it was kind of nice, actually, because these students, and I remember it was new to me, I was uh, the northern Southern Baptist guy that had no tact at all, um, but uh, they weren't Southern Baptists, but they were, um, they were very much about teaching their children respect, and so um, many times I'd be in the classroom and not see it. I'd be at my desk, and the students would be working, and some, somebody, uh, uh, another teacher would walk in, and all of a sudden, the students would be standing up. I'm like, what in the world's going on here? What's happening? And I stayed there long enough to just get used to it. And I'd see a, an adult start to come in, and I'd just say, class. And they'd, oh, yeah, and they'd stand. Now, I'm not saying we need to do that either. But what I am saying is that there was an expression of respect for God's word that was seen here as they stood. And I have seen this as well. I've been in churches where they have certain kind of... Uh, how should I say it, uh, practices, that's a regular thing that they do. And I have seen it become just the regular thing that they do, rather than it truly be what I think it probably meant at one time when they started doing it. And if we're not careful, doing what we're doing to show respect can, in some ways, be more about us. This happens in the scriptures. When the people of God um, go into exile they start fasting, and they continue this fast even after they've returned. And the Lord actually rebukes them for their fasting because he says, did I ever tell you to do that? No, he did not. He says, is this really about me or is this about you? Well, it was about them because they wanted to look at themselves and say, hey, see what we do for God? We fast for him. We really love him. And so it can become about us. So I know we must be careful of that. But respect will be, its source is from the heart. And I have been around many people who have spoken respectfully to me over the years, knowing that they didn't respect me. I have been around other people who didn't really speak, quote unquote, respectfully to me, and yet I could tell that they respected me because it's a matter of what comes from the heart, and, you can, and God knows our hearts. And so it's not an issue of whether you do this or do that. It's an issue of what's in your heart. Do you truly have a respect for the Word of God? And do you have such a respect for it that you would submit yourself to it? 
And that's what we see with these people. They show respect for, for God's word. And then what do they do? In verse 6, it says that they worshiped the Lord while this was going on. And uh, it's interesting as well. This is kind of, I I have lots of issues. You probably figured that out already. Um, If I were around you more, you'd figure out a lot more. One of my, I have lots of pet peeves. One of these is when I hear people make a distinction between worship and preaching. Like we worshiped, now we're going to hear the preaching of God's word. Let me tell you something. There's nothing more worshipful than submitting yourself and myself to the Word of God and listening to God speak to us and have a hunger and thirst for His Word to serve Him and to be what He has called us to be. That is as much an act of worship as any song we could ever sing, although singing is extremely important, and we need to be about all of it. It's worship, and they worship the Lord as they we're hearing the reading of God's word. And this makes sense. Um, what we do in our culture in America, in fact, I don't think I've ever been to a church that doesn't do this this way. We sing, and then we hear the preaching and teaching of God's word. Nothing wrong with that, but let me tell you something. That when we actually hear the teaching and preaching of God's word, that's reason to sing, too. And so as they heard God's word, we're going to sing. And so, uh, well, you all have it covered because you sing at the end as well, you see. But the thing is, it is to understand that there was a heart, a desire, not only to take in God's word, but as they were, this this was a worshipful experience all the way through for them. As they were giving attention to the reading of God's word, seeking to know God, and expressing their worship to him then in praise as they were expressing their worship to him and hearing the word of God and taking it in as well. And so this very much was a part of it. I think that obedience in our day-to-day life, by the way, is an act of worship. You don't have to argue with me. You can argue with Paul because he says that we are living sacrifices and that our logical expression of worship is to live our lives daily as living sacrifices unto God. And so that is a part of worship. What we see here as well, they're led by a godly man, a man of integrity who, who reads this, and this is Ezra. How do we know this? Well, in Ezra 7.10, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Not only had he given himself to know God's word, but he also gave himself to obey God's word, and then not to keep it to himself, but to share God's word and teach God's word to others. And this is what we need today. In the church, there are three essential things that are needed for godly leadership, and that is a commitment to the study of God's word, a commitment to obedience to God's word, and a commitment to teaching and preaching God's word. And this is what Nehemiah was all about. And 
I just want to rest just for a moment with this idea of obedience to God's word. Because we do live in a culture today, maybe more than ever, and maybe this is because of social media. It, 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 I rarely say I think things are good about social media. I think this is a good thing, although it's a bad thing, but it's a good thing. And you'll hear what I'm about to say. And that is this. We have more examples of people who are standing in pulpits and who are professing to be teachers of God's word, and we see them just readily with the click of a button to see that they're not really what they say they believe. And that's a good thing that we know the truth. It's a sorrowful thing that we do know that truth, though, at the same time. But we, it, it, it's the reality of it. And people today, they need to know what God's word says, but something else they want desperately. We all want this desperately. You want this from me. I, I got a kick out of it. And again, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. But one of the first weeks I came, someone came up and introduced themselves to me and said, um, oh, I, 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 they said something about me that they knew. And I was like, oh, how'd you know that? Oh, oh I Googled you. Yeah. So, um, so they were checking me out already. And um, the deal is, people want to know, do you believe what you're saying up there? You're saying that we should believe this. Do you believe it? Are you living this out? Is there really integrity in this? And it's true in the pulpit. It is true in the workplace. We, we look at unbelievers and we say, oh, you shouldn't be doing this and this should be the, the way you do and all this thing. But they're looking to see in your life, are you truly a man or woman of integrity that lives what you say? Or are you just one of those, again, that wants to attack everyone else and yet not put yourself under the spotlight of God's word and what he holds his people to, which is much higher a standard, by the way, than what he does any lost person. People want to know this in our home. Our children want to know this. You say you believe God's word. You say your children need to believe God's word, and you say they need to live, live for Christ. Do they see you living for Christ? You say we need to go to church. Do we need to go to church, or do they need to go to church? Yes, we need to go to church. We need to be with the people of God. We don't need fathers taking their children to work or mothers are to church or women taking mothers taking their children to church. No, no, no. We need families who say that God's people and the word of God is essential and we are committed to this. I need it. You need it. We need it as a family. This is who we are. And so we see this commitment here, and our children want to know, do you really believe it? If you do, you'd be living it yourself. Do they see integrity in this? I would rather this for my children, if they are unbelieving children. I would rather them say, I see how you live your life. I just don't agree with it, and I renounce it. I can live with that, not, not well. But I would much rather that be said to me than to say, 
you're a hypocrite. You say this, you don't even live it yourself, so I want no part of it. Let them reject the Lord and not us. Let us be faithful if they will reject. And let us be the witness that God has called us to be. And so obedience here, this is, this is who he was. He studied God's word, Ezra did. He obeyed it, and he taught it to others. Well, what about the reception of God's word? We see this in verses 9 through 12. Let's look at 9 through 12. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved." All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Notice how they received God's word. First of all, they wept when they heard it. Why did they weep? Because they recognized their sin. And we see this as we go through the passage here. They're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The people of God had not been faithful to celebrate this festival that was commanded by God, one of three festivals that were, was commanded by God for all of the people to do. They had not done this since the days of Joshua. So we're not even talking about during the time when there was an Israel, and then an Israel and a Judah, and then a Judah, and then an exile, and then a return. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that they had been unfaithful to God and doing what God's word had told them to do. And when they heard this, these people wept because they were truly convicted of their sin. And it broke their hearts that they had sinned against God. I say this not to evoke any kind of emotional response. In fact, sometimes I have seen there has been uh, emotion that has been just a replacement for real um, what comes out to be later on in a person's life to be real, uh, a real conviction and, and dedication to God. But I would say this, that if we are emotional and prone to it, when's the last time we've shown any emotion about our sin? When's the last time that we have been overwhelmed and broken about sin in our lives? I told you we got a, a new puppy. My last new puppy... I bought a brand new pair of Reeboks. They were wonderful. Notice how I'm putting those in the past tense. <laughs> I came in one day from school and met me at the door. 
it's okay. And I'm like, what's okay? It's going to be okay. But Chloe ate one of your shoes. No, 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 she didn't. And see, these weren't just any Reeboks. I'm, I'm from Ohio. I don't talk about my Buckeyes very much in my preaching and teaching. I am a huge Ohio State Buckeye fan. Um, and I bought these shoes. They were scarlet and gray and white. They were beautiful. They went with my shirts and my hoodies and my shorts and just so color-coordinated. It was just so wonderful. And she just ate it. I tried to glue it back. I did. I tried to glue it back together. I really did. And it's laughing because she knows I did. I, I tried everything. Tried to get, like, maybe I could salvage these. And they had quit making that shoe. I'd gotten it on a clearance, and they had quit making it. And so there it goes. Um, you know what? I'm still feeling a little bit here as you see me in front of you. How is it I could feel this way and then not be moved? by how offensive my sin is to my Lord and the need to repent of sin and be the man of God he's called me to be because of my love and devotion for, for him and to him, because of who he is and what he has done and what he's going to do. And we can get so emotional about things that in the scheme of life matter next to nothing compared to what really matters in our relationship with the Lord, which is what matters most. And so they were broken about their sin. It, it, meant, it meant something to them that they realized what they had done. And they wanted to repent of that and turn away from that. But it's interesting, the response that they receive from their leadership is not to, to weep, but to rejoice. It is right to respond in weeping. They weren't saying that they were wrong to weep, but they were saying, you don't have to keep weeping. Because the, the gospel is the gospel. That yes, we're sinners, but we have a God who forgives sin. And we have a God who loves you, who knows you. I was thinking of a song that we sung when I was a kid. Not, not a very deep wording, but it, it, the song goes this way, I am loved, I am loved, I can risk loving you because, and this is what I was thinking about, because the one who knows me best loves me most. The Lord knows you better than anyone else, and he loves you. He loves you. I was thinking about it. Anne knows me pretty well. We dated five and a half years, been married 34 and a half years since that, and she knows me pretty well. She still doesn't know every thought that goes through my head and things that I've done at times. But the Lord does. He knows every rotten attitude I've ever had, every rotten thought that I'd like to say and I haven't said. He knows it. And he loves me. Now, he corrects me 
with his word, just as he did these people. But he loves us. He loves his people. And we can rejoice in that. And we should rejoice in that. And what a wonderful thing it is. And so, yes, they wept, but then they rejoiced. And then what we see here, finally, in verses 13 through 18, and and I'll not have us read all of this, but what we see is the response to God's word. And what they do basically is this. They carry out the festival booths of tabernacles, it's often called as well. They carry this out when it had not been carried out again since the days of Joshua. In other words, they respond obediently. They respond. There's the reading of God's word. There's the response that they have to God's word. And then what we are, uh, there's the reception of God's word when they receive it. And now we see the response of God's word. And what is this response? We're going to do what God's word says. It says that this month, the seventh month, we should be celebrating the Feast of Booths. Everybody go out into the fields, get all the stuff you need to make those booths. We are going to celebrate the Festival of Booths because God has commanded it. And we're going to do what God has told us to do. And we're going to do so rejoicing. What was the Feast of Booths? Basically, it was a memorial of God's provision for his people when they were in the wilderness as Moses led them through the wilderness, remembering God's faithful, faithfulness to them in that dry and barren land. And as they celebrate here, and they're reminded of what God did in the days of Moses, they realize that this same God is faithful to them even in that moment and has been looking out for them and providing for them through terrible things that happened in their own land, through a time of exile, through a time of being beat down and a reproach by their neighbors, to this moment, to where God is still faithful, and they're rejoicing in their God. And they respond obediently. We're going to do what God wants us to do. What's interesting also, I'll make one more observation. You'll notice they come back the next day to hear more. When Ezra's done reading, it's not like, okay, we're done. We've heard this. It's been from morning to midday. We've heard enough. No, no, no. They come back the next day and they say, we want to hear more. We want to hear more. And they eagerly obey. They want to know more. And finally, let's read verses 17 and 18. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so since from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast of seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a, a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. They obeyed, they celebrated, and they immersed themselves in God's word. This is what they did. That's when revival takes place. When the people of God come together to hear the word of God, and then they worship their God. 
They repent of their sin. And they obey their God joyfully. That's when it happens. And may it be, this isn't something I believe that we can manufacture. But I believe it's something that God will do in the lives of his people if we'll be obedient to do what we know he wants us to do. And our hearts are the hearts that these people had. That they had a desire for God's word. And they anticipated it. And they immersed themselves in it. And they received it and responded in obedience to it. That is what made all the difference, really. Made all the difference with the people of God. And I'll tell you what. They were no longer a reproach. They were no longer a reproach. They were the people of God. And people knew they were the people of God. And what a wonderful thing it is when the people of God actually behave like the people of God. And the world sees it and says, those are the people of God. We bring honor to him when we do that. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word We thank you that it is the word of life. We thank you that it is your revelation of yourself to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who bears witness to it in our hearts and minds. And Father, I pray that you would put in us the desire for your word that these people had. That you would put in us a seriousness to receive your word and then a readiness to respond to it in obedience for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That we would be the church you called us to be, a light that shines out the glories of our Savior in a very dark world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and it is for his sake we pray.